Many TV crime dramas feature storylines that are, as their publicists like to say, ripped from the headlines. Historically, the Indiana General Assembly's approach to criminal justice lawmaking has been pretty similar. A particularly heinous crime was almost sure to trigger a response, usually harsher penalties, in the very next legislative session. The upshot? Ever-growing prison populations. Hi, I'm John Schwannis, and on this edition of Indiana Lawmakers, we'll explore the General Assembly's newfound interest in less costly alternatives to wholesale incarceration, including community-based rehabilitation for nonviolent offenders. Here's some background from Jill Sheridan of WFYI News. Last year, Indiana's new criminal code went into effect, the first major overhaul in 35 years. This year, lawmakers are working to refine that code in hopes of keeping people out of Indiana prisons and preventing them from coming back. Under Indiana's old penal code, problems like jail overcrowding, lack of funding, and recidivism kept persisting. So legislators reworked the code to make the punishment more proportional to the crime. They did this by changing the felony sentencing structure, increasing the time that violent offenders stay in jail, and sending low-level offenders to county facilities for treatment. This session, there are over 100 bills that deal with the criminal code. The proposals cover a wide range of issues, from deadly weapons to serious sex offenders. Some bills seek to raise sentences, potentially sending more people back to state jails. If deterrence worked, there should be no drug dealing in the state of Indiana, because we increased sentences until there was a mandatory minimum 20-year sentence for a very small amount of drug transactions. It didn't have an impact. Uh, so. There's no, no reason to think that it, and it, enhancing a sentence is going to deter the crime. House Bill 1006 is a key piece of legislation to implement the provisions of Indiana's new criminal code. The proposal provides $80 million over two years to fund substance abuse treatment, mental health programs, and other essential services to keep low-level offenders out of state prisons. The bill's author, Republican Greg Sturwald from Avon, says that lawmakers are making his bill a priority because they understand the importance of fully funding the effort. Money set aside in the budget from the Department of Community Corrections and the FSSA's Division of Mental Health and Addiction could also help people on the local level. Landis says that there seems to be an across-the-board consensus that this is the smartest way to fight crime and increase public safety. I've never seen... Uh, so much agreement among judges, prosecutors, defense lawyers, probation officers, community corrections officials, uh, DOC, mental health people, they're all uh, in sync. Representative Stuhlwold believes the bill will pass with bipartisan support. For Indiana Lawmakers, I'm Jill Sheridan. And thanks, Jill. Back in a moment with our weekly roundtable discussion. Indiana Lawmakers, from the State House, New York. What if a robotic arm could help disabled students reach for their dreams? It does. Introducing RoboDesk. To learn more about this and more than 400 other world-changing Purdue technologies, visit otc-prf.org. The first top-to-bottom overhaul of Indiana's criminal code since 1977 took effect this past summer. The goal, in short, was to lock up the worst of the worst for as long as possible, while keeping many nonviolent offenders out of prison altogether. 
This session, lawmakers are looking to tweak the revisions, tackle some of the root causes of crime, and ease the financial burden that the overhaul placed on Indiana's counties. Here to discuss the issue are Republican Senator Jim Merritt of Indianapolis, a vocal advocate of measures to curb violent crime in Indiana's urban centers, including his hometown, which experienced 135 murders last year. Democratic Representative Matt Pierce of Bloomington, the ranking minority member of the House Courts and Criminal Code Committee and a co-author of the aforementioned criminal code overhaul, and Indianapolis Public Safety Director Troy Riggs, who hopes to reduce violent crime by 5% this year, in part by focusing law enforcement efforts on six high crime areas that together are responsible for more than one-fourth of the city's murders. And I thank you for being here. Not always the most pleasant topic, but it's an important one, certainly. Let me start with the man in the trenches. Uh, uh, Troy, you, what, uh, this show airs statewide, so some folks who are watching and listening may not be familiar with just how tough the situation in uh, the past few years has been in Indianapolis. Give us a flavor of what you're up against. Well, it is tough. We had 135 homicides last year, uh, 521 shootings. 521 human beings were shot in the city of Indianapolis in one year last year. What's ironic about that, however, is that's a lower amount than in 2012 when we had fewer than 100 homicides. What we have seen over the last couple of years is a 22% increase in the amount of people that are involved in homicides as suspects that have criminal past. 92% of all suspects in our homicides locally have criminal past. That's why we're looking to the State House to toughen up some laws regarding mandatory minimums. But we're also at the State House asking about services. We need services for those 8,000 individuals that are going to return to Marion County for prison each and every year, a third of which live in other parts of the state, but they're coming here to Marion County for services. And, and this notion of focusing on six areas that I mentioned in the introduction. This is an idea uh, based on the notion of being proactive, is it? You focus there and maybe sort of clean up those areas and, and get in front of the problem? Is that? Uh... It is. One of the reasons the mayor brought me here two years ago is really look at da data. So we've looked at data and it's led us to six areas. Now these are eight square miles of Indiana Indianapolis, 4.7% of our population, which is about 42,000 people. In those areas, you have a 600% greater likelihood to have a homicide than anywhere else in the city of Indianapolis and about a 700% greater likelihood to be involved in a non-fatal shooting. Now, gentlemen, when you uh, see this kind of uh, frustration and fear in our capital city, uh, or the state house, uh, where laws are in fact uh, being considered and made, does it make it easier or tougher to pursue sort of broad-based uh, code reform? Because again, that's not necessarily responding to crime A gives punishment A. It's much broader. Uh, you were an author, uh, as I pointed out, of this measure. Is it tougher or easier? Well, it, it can make it more complicated, but that's the amazing thing is over the past five or six years, there's been pretty um, consistent approach across um, both parties to crime. And the idea is that for a long time, we tried the standard thing of where when crime spikes, you just increase the sentences and you hope that if you can get more people put away, that will lower the crime rate. And what we found is that doesn't necessarily work. We did go ahead and increase the crimes on the most violent criminals. We want, there are certain people you need to keep out of society to protect society, and we're all for that. So we increased those sentences. But on the lower end, the nonviolent Then they have to stay there, serve longer Right, serve 75% of, of their time instead of the old 50%. And so we, we've addressed that part of it, but also we realized that our prisons were really getting overcrowded with people that didn't really belong there, and we weren't getting to the root cause of the crime. And that is that about 80% of the people in our criminal justice system they either have a drug problem or a mental health problem. 
And so the idea is to keep those people that are nonviolent in the community and actually address the underlying cause of the crime. Clearly, uh, while that's uh, an overarching philosophy, there's still, Jim Merritt, a lot of uh, pent-up uh, anger and frustration when particularly heinous crimes occur. We had the shooting at Purdue, fatal shooting, that we saw legislation offered out of that. Uh, when ISIS started uh, mm -hmm. making noise, we saw that beheadings became a capital offense, or at least is moving toward that direction in Indiana statute. You, in fact, uh, uh, had a constituent uh, killed by a 16-year-old that uh, you wanted to do something directly in response to that as well. Right, and I had, I had a bill that um, uh, actually had 14-year-olds direct filed to adult court, uh, whereas right now that's not the case. And, and that bill was not heard uh, to follow up with the, the agreement that uh, due to House Bill 1006 that we're going to try to a, a different approach. I still support the idea that if you use a gun in the, in the commission of a crime, uh, even if you wave a gun, uh, that, that you have a uh, mandatory minimum uh, sentence on your, on, your, um, on your additional, let's just say it was robbery, and you get eight years, I believe that you have to put at least 15 years on top of that, maybe even 20 years, if you use a gun in that robbery. Uh, even waving it. I, I think that those that illegally use guns, we have to send a strong message that that is not acceptable. And, and last year we, we allowed a five to 20 year um, with flexibility at the local level. I think that needs to be increased. That was your bill last year. Yes, I, it was my bill last year. And working with the mayor of Indianapolis and, and Director Riggs, uh, but but that, that was watered down. And I still believe we need to send a strong signal that Illegal use of guns is not acceptable, and uh, and I'll continue to work on that. Troy Riggs, you talked uh, a moment ago about uh, you know harsh, trying to seek harsher penalties and enhanced penalties uh, for some of these violent crimes. Is that exactly what you're talking about? Exactly. When when we look at our numbers, when we realize that 92 percent of those suspects and 83 percent of the victims have criminal past a very similar past, and then when we started looking at what they had been charged with in the past, many of them have been charged with violent gun crimes. We believe if we had a mandatory minimum of just five years for a violent gun crime, that up to 24% of our homicides would not have occurred last year. If we had a mandatory minimum for a violent gun crime of 10 years, up to 34% of our homicides wouldn't have occurred. Now, we also know that's not the final answer. Uh, even if you do keep someone in prison for five years or ten years, we still need services. And we are really pushing just as hard on the side of getting some services for first day in. So first day in prison instead of the first day out, we think that's more successful long term and adds to the safety of not only Indianapolis but Indiana. Well, in the meantime, uh, though, the prison population, if these sorts of measures were enacted, would theoretically go up, which is counter to the whole notion or at least one of the ideas or motivators behind the code reform, which was to keep prison populations in check. Do you sense at all that we're, you know, the reform hasn't really been fully implemented, mm -hmm. I right. guess, if you want to look, say, that July, uh, you know, first of this past summer was, was the go date. But already we're seeing in requests for enhancements. Uh, I was looking through the bill lists and everything from child molesting to sex crimes that occur on school property to new aggravating circumstances uh, in, in uh, murder cases. Does it kind of unravel what you're trying to do? Well, it can if you're not careful in how you approach it. And I think that, unfortunately, in the political world, 
We have constituents come to us and when you have particularly horrific crime, they basically say, you guys need to do something about this or you need to get the crime rate down. And so we try to respond in the most quick, direct way we can, and that often is not the best way. And I think that on the mandatory sentences, when we looked at the, the uh, criminal justice reform and what other states had done, we've concluded that rather than risking having arbitrary results within the criminal justice system is to give the judges greater discretion. And so we have, we have you know, kind of advisory or suggested sentences, but we give the judges the ability to go um, way higher on that. And there are some enhancements that give judges additional ranges they can apply if people you know, are doing violent things or using weapons in the process. And so I kind of prefer the approach where we give the judges the discretion to decide, okay, is this one of these people who is likely to um, commit a, another violent crime or somebody we just need to keep off the street because they're dangerous? They have the tools to give that additional time, but we didn't want to have people stuck in prison that really don't need to be protected from society. And the greatest example of that is, you know, some of the 20-year sentences on the drug crimes. And we've, got, we've had some people in prison you know, for having more than three grams of, a, of cocaine or something like that, and really taking up space that should be reserved for a violent criminal. Well, one of the measures, if I'm not mistaken, it's, I'm not sure where it is in the process right now, I'm presuming it's still moving, would in fact make retroactive some of the sentencing uh, uh, alterations or that would apply prior to the, the July 1st uh, implementation of the code reform, is that correct? So that would address some of those, what might seem out of uh, out of out of line sentences? Yeah, there was some debate about whether, well, what about the poor guy who got sentenced the day before and if he'd committed the crime the day after the code went into effect, it'd be lower. What should we do about that? And the legislature actually decided we really wanted to draw a bright line between what came before and, and what came after. And so although there's some people who would like to kind of go in and correct what they think were um, things that were too harsh under the old code, I think most of the um, people most directly involved in writing these laws in the legislature kind of prefer to just draw that line. Since the victims were involved in that process previously and the judges were working under the old code, we think it might be problematic if you go in and try to open up all those old crimes that have already been adjudicated. John, we yeah. have a real problem when an 11-year-old, who is a juvenile now, robs a CVS. We have a very, very big problem, and it can't wait a year or two for the criminal... Uh, recodification for the for the code for this for this to, to work and we need to we need to get at it first and since my bill that uh, directly files 14 year olds into adult court didn't work because adult court is not uh, doesn't know how to handle a 14 year old I'm I'm uh, I've got language that hopefully I can place somewhere into the into the statute at, at, at session end that will first of all uh, engage the parents in juvenile court and, and put more services into the home in the way of either drug rehab or tu tutoring or, or, or something that engages the parents. But also, if it doesn't work, holds the parents responsible. The juvenile court does not have the tools for that. And, and if my, This is if opposed I, to just putting them, locking them up. As, as or, or, letting, the, yeah. Yeah, or letting them float away. Right. And, and a lot of times these, these juveniles just float away because they don't have the tools. And holding a parent in contempt um, we might be able to get that uh, some some things done. Well, what's what's going to happen to the prison population? Even even let's say that none of these enhancements uh, we've talked about is enacted, unlikely. But let's just say that for sake of discussion, we still don't even know whether the prison population is going to go up or down. The governor's office had included what fifty one million dollars for uh, an, an additional twelve hundred beds at two facilities. Uh, that was stripped out. Uh, apparently. 
the thinking, I guess, at least in the House, was that the prison population won't go well, up. There, there, there is a great deal of debate. I don't think it's quite that uncertain. One of the things that we did over last summer is we actually hired an expert um, who's based out of Georgia, and he's done a lot of analysis in what different criminal code changes have done to prison populations. And believe me, we exhaustively debated all the variables and had all the discussions. And, uh, and we're so the pretty, governor's wrong in your we're, we're pretty convinced it's going to go down. The Department of Corrections, because the credit time was dialed back for the more violent criminals, they're convinced that they're going to get overflowed with people on the higher end. And they claim that we can't take a, a minimum or medium security prison and somehow adjust it to handle the expanding population of violent criminals while we're reducing the nonviolent felons who come into their facilities. I, I have a hard time believing we can't get that done. But that I'm pretty convinced, and if you look at the numbers, the population is going to go down, and we're going to reduce crime by getting at the root of the crime. And Senator Merritt's got a perfect point. I mean, an 11-year-old having a gun in the first place and then using it to commit a crime, that tells you there's something seriously gone wrong in that family, in that community, and we've got to get at the root causes of those kinds of things. You know, and we pointed out the House did take out the $51 million allocation for prison, but put in, uh, what is at this point, $80 million over the biennium for largely treatment. I think 75% of it by statute would have to be treatment. You mentioned services and treatment. This is what you're talking about, Tyreek? It is, and when you look at the amount of people coming to Marion County, as I said, we believe it's about 8,000. We are hearing that because of some of the changes, it could increase to 10,000 individuals coming to Marion County, a third of which have never lived in Marion County before they're coming here for services, and we simply don't have services for 10,000 human beings. We want to have services. Drug treatment, drug addiction treatment, services, mental and, health services. And job opportunities. Uh, those that have job opportunities and educational opportunities succeed, and we're really struggling finding them opportunities. We're doing a lot in Department of Public Safety to try to help people uh, get on their feet, to have a good paying job, to have a future, but there's only so much we can do as Department of Public Safety. It's going to take all of us in the state working together, and I'm glad to hear the work that's being done there. I've been there to testify on behalf of a variety of different things that we're doing, but it's going to have to be a comprehensive plan to deal with these issues. These issues, right now, a lot of people are focusing on Indianapolis. When you look at our overall crime trend, it's trending downward. This year, homicides are trending downward. However, we're not celebrating that because we still have these systemic issues. We still have a lot of people moving here. And when we have a third of which have never lived in Marion County before, we need some assistance from the state. Is, is $80 million enough? I, Larry Landis, who has, what, for 35 years headed the uh, Public Defender's Council, says no. He says that it needs to be more, that that, that Puts a dent in it, but not much more. Yeah, I think it's a good start because we need to scale this stuff. But you have to remember, we have to get these programs, these treatment programs, out to all 92 counties. And a lot of the urban areas have some resources they can work with, still not enough, but they've got something to work with. You have a lot of rural areas just don't have anything. And the prosecutors tell us they would love to be able to work people into treatment or mental health programs and get at those underlying things and have more intensive supervision through their probation departments, but they don't have the resources. So this is a good down payment to start. I'm absolutely convinced that as the system gets put in place and really begins to take hold, we're going to save so much money on the Department of Corrections side of it that we'll have more than enough to continue to invest in this local levels where the people really have to deal with the problems firsthand. Well, you know, what happens when somebody who is uh, being dealt with through community corrections in a community setting treatment goes and does something horrific. I, I'm thinking, for instance, about the Alan Matheny case back mm -hmm. in the early days of the Bi Evan Bay administration uh, when this fellow who was out on a prison work release uh, program or, or some sort of bout, uh, temporary uh, past killed his estranged uh, wife. 
I don't think Evan Bayh uh, allowed another penny to flow into community corrections or work release after that. How do you fend off the, uh, the natural response of the public and many of your colleagues probably who say, okay, we can't do this. This is, this is why we can't use community corrections. Well, it's, it's, it's a very, very difficult uh, situation because it, it, those, that, that is probably going to happen. And, and there are so many drugs flowing through Indianapolis and so many illegal guns. Uh, I think we just continue to, you know, push the boulder down the alley. And, and is and there continue enough to work on uh, fortitude on the part of it, uh, the House and Senate to, to make that stick? Well, uh, just f for instance, this, this uh, uh, 1006 agreement, uh, I've worked a lot on designer drugs. That's the funding. Uh, yes. Yeah. And, and right now, designer drugs are not, are not felonies like the drugs they imitate. And, and they're more dangerous. And so we've got to be careful that we're, we're, we're not just shutting all of it off because I believe that if you have spice in your body, there's a good possibility that you're going to die. Now, with marijuana, who knows? But if you have, if you have we have the Center Grove boy who passed away from a, a, a fake LSD, uh, and his friends didn't. And so uh, there's got to be some situations where we've got to hike, enhance, penalties because these drugs are poison and it's something that that uh, we can't let go for another year is the John I was gonna say I think the big difference between now and back in the 80s when they had the Matheny cases now we have what are called evidence-based best practices where people have really studied very carefully what works and what doesn't and we now have instruments and things to kind of evaluate individuals and see how likely are they to reoffend, to be violent and you can kind of get a better sense of who um, is most likely to succeed in a community correction program or on probation. And the people who kind of can be identified as uh, riskier people, then you can deal with them in a different setting. And so I think that's the key thing. And that's part of what we have to do is get all these local people and probation departments and law enforcement trained on these new evidence-based best practices and get them in place. Unfortunately, even with credit for good behavior, we're out of time. I hate to report. I thank you all for being here for this important discussion. Again, my guests have been Republican Senator Jim Merritt of Indianapolis, Democratic Representative Matt Pierce of Bloomington, and Indianapolis Public Safety Director Troy Riggs. How big is the problem if you have to pass legislation to ensure the ethics of your legislators? We'll see who recuses himself on the next Indiana Lawmakers. And time now for our weekly conversation with Ed Feigenbaum, publisher of the newsletter Indiana Legislative Insight. Ed, we can't even seem to agree on what these prison population projections uh, are. You know, Matt Pierce says the governor's numbers are wrong. I'm guessing the governor would say Matt Pierce's numbers are wrong. Why is it so difficult when you're dealing with these sort of projections to, to come to some uh, agreement? Good question. A lot of legislators thought coming into the session that, that they had that completely down, that they knew that, that prisons were going to accommodate so many people, that the new program was going to require so many fewer bed spaces than, they, than the governor says. But Which is why his honest, call for additional funding was caught a lot of people by surprise. Right, but there's honest disagreement. We've, we've seen a, um, a disagreement about information on a few other issues as well. And we talked on the, the show a few weeks ago about the, the difference in information on the property tax issue. You know, the governor's people were, were coming up with one estimate. The Legislative Services Agency was coming up with another estimate. And there's been a dearth of information on some particular issues, a disagreement on information on other issues, and that's been problematic. Let me switch gears for a moment because we are at the halfway point of the session. 
Eager to get your take on surprises. What, uh, what made it through that surprised you? What didn't make it maybe that surprised you? I think above all, you have to compliment legislative leadership on the way that the, the first half of the session went. Um, again, with a supermajority, you, you always have to be sensitive to the fact that they could do more, and if they did do more, it could be disastrous for them and for the state. But the speaker in particular did a real good job, Brian Bosman, managing the calendar and second and third readings, kept the, the process flowing cajoled a few legislators into taking some things out of order or Kept some things order. off the calendar altogether. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. And, and not in a mean-spirited And that was smart, you think, on his part? In yes. Yes. It was not done in a mean-spirited or partisan way, and it, it really helped things um, move and managed to, uh, to keep everybody happy. Um, there was one, one bill where, in, in the end, the last day of the session, that uh, the supermajority could have come in and, and really kind of kicked butt on, but decided that it would not be uh, a smart thing to do in the annexation bill. And they kept that one off the, the calendar, and, and that will end up being uh, handled in the Senate legislation. Well, a few things that were, are still alive were surprises. They weren't on the radar screen, uh, you know, back at the beginning of the session. The common wage, uh, construction wage? Absolutely. That, that was not part of the Republican legislative agenda. The Speaker ended up twisting a few arms on that, and it's going to be interesting to see what happens what does in happen? the Senate. I'm going to hold you to that. What's your prediction? Well, the, the Senate's going to hear it in a uh, committee that it wouldn't ordinarily hear it in, um, and as a result, it's probably got a better chance than it would have otherwise. All right. We will wait and see. Ed, as always, thanks for your insight. For more information, episode streams, and extra content, visit us on the web at wfyi.org lawmakers. You can access live streaming coverage of the General Assembly on the Internet as well. And remember, you can get our show on demand from Xfinity and Bright House Networks. Well, that concludes another edition of Indiana Lawmakers. I'm John Schwannis, and on behalf of WFYI Public Media and Indiana's other public broadcasting stations, I thank you for joining us, and I invite you to visit WFYI.org for exclusive web content, including the best advice our guests have ever received. Until next week, take care. What if an app could give a voice to children silenced by autism? It can. Introducing Speak All. To learn more about this and more than 400 other world-changing Purdue technologies, visit otc-prf.org.